Well, I would encourage you to go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42 as we do continue on in the Word of God in the book of Genesis. Genesis. As you know, Joseph has been taken to Egypt. Uh, Initially as a slave, sold by Midianite slave uh, slave traders. He was uh, a slave to Potiphar, uh, the captain of the guard. And then he was wrongly accused. He was thrown in prison. And there he languished for many years without much hope of ever being released until the butler, whose dream he correctly interpreted, remembered him when it came time to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. These dreams of the seven fat cows followed by the seven lean cows and then the seven uh, ripe heads of grain followed by the seven lean heads of grain that ate up all the other ones that had come before them. And Jacob was able to interpret it, and Jacob was advanced to the position of second in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. He's now in charge of the dispersing of all the grain that was gathered in the seven years now that uh, the entire world is in the midst of famine. And his own brothers have come to uh, Egypt, but they have not recognized him because he is strange to them. First off, they don't expect to see Joseph, obviously. Secondly, he is attired as an Egyptian. He's speaking Egyptian. He is shaved, and he would have on uh, the royal robes and so on. It's just not possible that this could be their brother Jacob, who they sold into slavery. However, uh, the strange occurrences uh, that occur when they interact with this uh, Egyptian official remind them of the terrible things that they did to their brother and they feel bad. So we're going to uh, see now what happens as they return to bring back bad news to their brother that their uh, brother Simeon, the second uh, oldest of the brothers, has been imprisoned in Egypt and now this Egyptian official is demanding that they bring Benjamin, the light of his father's eye, to Egypt if they are to receive any more grain. So we'll find out what happens after that. But first let's Go before the Lord who gave this word to us and who gave it originally to Moses so that the people might know what had transpired with Joseph and how they had come to Egypt. God, our Father, we thank you, Lord, that you're sovereign in all things, that you truly are in charge of all time and all events. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn that as we read your word. Help us to trust you with our lives. We know that only you are perfectly trustworthy. And help us, O Lord, not to fret. Lord, we are so often anxious But remind us that our anxiety cannot add one cubit to our stature. It can't help us at all. I pray, therefore, Lord, that as we read, we would remember that these words weren't written merely to your people many, many years ago. They were written to us, and they were meant to be heard by us today in this place. May they be a comfort to our hearts thereby and make us attentive. Give us ears to hear. Let this not be an unprofitable moment in time, but rather remind us, O Lord, of these things, not just as we're hearing them, but later on let us meditate upon them. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. 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 Reading Genesis 42 and then starting with verse 29. I remind you, this is the word of the Lord. Then they went to Jacob, their father, in the land of Canaan and told him all that had happened to them, saying... The man who is Lord of the land spoke roughly to us and took us for spies of the country. But we said to him, we're honest men. We're not spies. We're 12 brothers, sons of our father. One is no more. And the youngest is with our father this day in the land of Canaan. Then the man, the Lord of the country said to us, by this, I will know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me. Take food for the famine of your households and be gone and bring your youngest brother to me. So I shall know that you are not spies. But that you are honest men, I will grant your brother to you 
and you may trade in the land. Then it happened as they emptied their sacks that surprisingly each man's bundle of money was in his sack. And when they and their father saw the bundles of money, they were afraid. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. Then Reuben spoke to his father, saying, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you. But he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. All these things are against me. How often has that been the cry of our hearts in our particular situation? We receive bad news and all we can see is the bad in it. It can't possibly presage any good for us. Things are just going to get worse and worse and worse. I think sometimes, you know, as Calvinists, we believe in the sovereignty of God, theoretically speaking. In other words, the sovereignty of God exists out here. It, uh, it works in terms of world events, uh, generally speaking. And we're willing to admit that the Bible does, in fact, say in Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, those who are the called according to his purpose. Yes, but when it comes to my particular life, it must be the case that occasionally things work out that just are not going to work in my favor. There are long periods in which things are going on that uh, somehow God isn't in charge of. Somehow he did not order them. Somehow from the beginning of time, everything else was supposed to be going the way it is, but not my life, not that moment. Everything is just wrong. It's bad news. It can't turn for good. God has somehow forgotten me. I was left off the agenda and woe is me. I am going to now just sit down and pity myself maybe for a day, maybe for a week, maybe for a month, or maybe for the rest of my life. I'm just going to devote myself to self-pity. It happens. We can spend entire seasons with the blues thinking that nothing is actually going right. But if we just stopped and considered what we read in the Bible and what we see in the lives of so many different Christians, we've seen how bad things can happen and the Lord can amazingly turn them for good. I mean, the greatest example of that in the Bible, I shouldn't have to tell you this, is to be found in the crucifixion. There was no greater sin that has ever been committed by mankind than taking the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and judicially murdering him. And yet it was through this means, the greatest evil that God brought about the greatest good. You remember the disciples on their way to Emmaus thinking to themselves, we thought this man was going to be the Messiah. We thought things would turn for good. Now everything's gone. It's all gone, and no good will ever come of it. And Jesus himself was walking with them and rebuked them and told them how these things had to be so. It had to happen this way. There was no other way that redemption could be accomplished but that by the Messiah would be sent to the cross. Unless the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world was actually slain for our sins, our redemption could not come about. So what they thought was for evil, what they thought was bad news, was actually good news. One of the books that I have had cause to go back to again and again was a book written by a Puritan preacher by the name of Thomas Watson. 
the modern version is All Things for Good. The original title was A Divine Cordial, but today we think of cordials as little cherry things wrapped up in, in paper that you eat after dinner and go, hmm, a little too sweet, but you know. Anyway, um, back then a cordial was actually medicine that you gave, uh, and usually a cordial, although we think of cordials as good, tasted terrible, but was intended to do good for you. It's an interesting fact that physicians back in Thomas Watson's time thought that the worst, uh, the worse something tasted, the better it would be. So there was no strawberry flavored cough syrup back then. Uh, but All Things for Good by Thomas Watson is a wonderful record of all of the ways in the Bible things that seem to be bad did in fact work for good and how the Lord can and does constantly work good in the lives of his people through various means. Sometimes doing things that while we don't enjoy them, while they're painful, while we wish we hadn't had to go through them, they ultimately work for our good. And it hasn't just been my experience finding that in Thomas Watson's book. It's been my experience finding that in my own Christian life. Now I have to tell you, I have not enjoyed the times of chastening in my own life. I have not enjoyed the times when everything seemed to be going in the wrong direction, where everything that I did suddenly turned to garbage in front of my eyes. I did not enjoy those moments, but looking back on them with the benefit of hindsight, I have many times been able to see it had to happen that way. And I see how that way was better than the way that I planned. I've used this example before, but Ruth Bell Graham once confessed, I never once prayed that the Lord would give me Billy Graham as my husband. I had other men in mind, but ultimately the Lord knew better, and he gave her the man that he had intended for her to marry, and she wasn't sorry at the end of time. So we go back to the text, and once again we find that the, uh, the brothers are in trouble They've come back to their father Jacob. They have been sent out to find food, and instead they come back uh, with food, but missing one brother. Simeon has been lost. And this time, the brothers tell the truth about where he's gone. We remember that when Joseph was lost, they told a tall tale about a beast obviously tearing him and and the blood on the, the coat of many colors, which had been rent, and it seemed to indicate that he'd been killed by a wild beast. And now we have reason to wonder whether or not Jacob believes them about that anymore. All he sees now is that Simeon is gone. But one of the things that we see, or we should see, is that they are gradually being convicted of this. The Lord is working in their hearts, as I said last week. There's conviction now occurring amongst these brothers who had plotted evil against Joseph, who had, did, uh, who had, did, who had done rotten things to their brother. The Lord is now using all of these odd and sad providences in their lives to convict them of their sin and bring them to a place where they are soft-hearted. They had said, remember, what is this that God has done to us? They're thinking already of the sovereignty of God. They were thinking of what happened with Joseph, and they're thinking for themselves, this must be because of what we did. And they want now to understand how they should be changed. Now, remember that they felt all of this was happening to them as a punishment for what they had done to Joseph. They, too, like Jacob, do not necessarily believe this is suddenly going to turn for good. So they believe in the sovereignty of God. But from their perspective, it's, well, what's going on now is punishment for us. We can do that, too, can't we? Bad things happen, and all we think is, I'm being punished for my prior sins. I'm being punished for my prior sins. I'm being punished for my prior sins. 
And we never stop to consider, but it's for our good. Even when we're chastened by the hand of God, God is the most loving of parents. A loving parent chastens their child because they hate them, right? No, just seeing if you're listening. A loving parent chastens their child because they love them and they want to turn them out of the course that will destroy them or hurt them or affect them negatively. And so God does the same with us. But they haven't stopped to consider. They just think that this is punishment rather than chastening at this point in time. And they're wondering what on earth is going to happen. They don't, uh, what, what they tell him obviously is enough to make Jacob bitterly cry out. Now, they can't tell Jacob, well, we think God's hand is in this because they would have to say, you know, if he said, why do you think God's hand is in this? Oh, because we lied to you about Joseph. Yeah, we actually sold him into slavery. He's, he's not, well, he wasn't dead then. We kind of think he's probably dead. Life expectancy of slaves wasn't that great. But uh, anyway, that's why we think God is, his hand is in it. So they're not going to do that, obviously. They keep silent, unfortunately, about that. They're continuing to lie by omission to their, their father. But Jacob sees it as Joseph's gone. Now Simeon's gone. And they come back and they say, oh, yeah, we're taking Benjamin with us next time we go. And his answer, the answer of his heart is no, not a chance. There's no way you are going back with Benjamin. He cries out. You remember, for years, this man has been mourning the loss of his favorite son, from his favorite wife. He's mourning the loss of Joseph. And now the sons that he clearly blames for that loss want to take his youngest and favorite son, Benjamin, from him as well. No, 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 it's not happening. You have bereaved me. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. Now you want to take Benjamin. All these things are against me. But to quote Thor to Bruce Banner, is it though? Is it really against you? Are they? This is the cry of someone who has been nurturing sorrow and self-pity. Now I have to warn you, brothers and sisters, this is an application, obviously, of what we're learning here. Nurture that in your heart, and after a while, everything will fit that particular paradigm. Everything that happens in your life will be seen as something that's against you, you can, a friend can come to you and they can tell you, you're in the middle of this pit, something wonderful has happened, brother, this, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yes, that'll happen to you, but it'll never happen to me. Why, 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 you know? Things like that. And everything, no matter what happens in your life. Oh, I was praying for a job and now I've got one, but it's not the right job. And, you know, you can go through, I was praying for a wife, not the right wife, not the right house, not the right, you know. Everything works into the self-pity spiral. No matter what happens, it's not good enough. It's not what you wanted. It's not going to help. And it's all part of God's plan against you. Maybe he's sovereign, but he's plotting against me. That's what I think is going on. <laughs> You're a little too big for your britches if you think that's what's happening. If the Lord wanted to deal with you that way, trust me, he could do so in a moment. But the Lord loves us, and therefore he orders affairs in our lives, sometimes in ways that we don't expect, that we don't want, but ultimately he orders them aright. Jacob has forgotten that. He has nurtured that self-pity. He said to himself, I'm never going to stop mourning from, uh, for Joseph and he kept his promise to himself. That's not helping. It's not Christian. 
it's not right. It's a reminder that the patriarchs were not perfect. One of the things that we need to learn from the Bible is that while in many ways the heroes of the Bible can be exemplars for us, they can be examples, they can show us the right way to go, these are not perfect men and they cannot save themselves and that they sinned as well. This is not somebody who at this moment in time is experientially trusting God. It's also, note this, he says, everything is against me and it is false. That's a lie. Everything, if he only saw it or knew it or trusted God, everything is actually working for him for a number of reasons. All he sees at this point are the losses, though. So it's a, it's a sad and bitter cry. Um, he doesn't see any possibility any of these things can be for good. And yet, we know the truth, don't we? We know what's actually going on. We know, for instance, Joseph is at the right hand of Pharaoh. At the moment, he is the most important man in all of Egypt. We know that Simeon is actually safer in Egypt than he is in the Promised Land because he's in his, his brother's care and he's being fed by him. He may be in jail at this point, but he's nonetheless being taken care of. But we are seeing the effects of, of that, that pity. We're also seeing, unfortunately, the, the effects of what inevitably happens when a, a parent or a family member has been lied to for a long period of time. What happens? They just don't trust. Jacob clearly doesn't trust his sons at all. I'm not giving you Benjamin. I wouldn't trust you, you know, with, with the goats. I can barely trust you with them. I, I'm, I'm not trusting you with Benjamin. Matthew Henry points out that Jacob doesn't really know what happened in Egypt, but the finding of the money in the sack means his sons may have done something really bad. That's probably what he was thinking. Uh, they may have had, you know, to come hightailing it out of Egypt. After all, if the money is there, did they really pay for the food? How else would the money be in their sack? If they hadn't done something deceitful, something dishonest, did they steal the food and Simeon was caught, perhaps? His mind is, is this, and it happens. After you've been lied to for a while, your mind becomes this whirl of doubts and fears and misgivings. And so when somebody does tell you the truth, are they really telling me the truth? I, I don't know. The one thing he knows is that he doesn't trust them and he won't trust Benjamin with them. So no, it's not happening. I'm not sending him with you. And that leaves him with what Derek Kidner rightly calls a suicidally defensive posture. Think about it. If he maintains that posture and he says, no, Benjamin will never go with you, they all die. If he keeps saying, you can't have Benjamin, therefore you can't down to, uh, go down to Egypt to get more food, they'll all die, including Benjamin. That's absolutely the case. And this is the position, perhaps, of, of say, a parent who refuses surgery on a child because it's risky, not thinking at the same time, well, if this doesn't happen, this child may die. Many a parent has had to make that decision, recognizing that although it means placing their child in the hands of the surgeon at the same time, what are they really doing? They're placing their child in the hands of God and trusting in him. He is unwilling to do that at this point. All these things are against me. It's not true. Joseph is doing very well, better than anyone could ever expect. Simeon is fine. And as I said, how often do we essentially do the same thing? All these things are against me. Matthew Henry points this out. He says, 
True griefs may arise from false intelligence and suppositions, simply not judging things aright or having all of the information. Jacob gives up Joseph are gone and Simeon and Benjamin as being in danger and he concludes, all these things are against me. It proves otherwise that all these were for him, were working together for his good and the good of his family. Yet here he thinks them all against him. Note, through our ignorance and mistake and the weakness of our faith, we often apprehend that to be against us, which is actually for us. We are afflicted in body, estate, name, and relations, and we think all these things are against us, whereas they are really working for us the weight of glory. I have met many people who were deprived of something that they thought that they, they could never part with, whether it be a relation or a job or something like that, but the losing of that thing was actually the making of them. It allowed them to go into some other area, move to some other place, begin another job, or begin working actively for the Lord. The loss of that one thing was actually the thing that was holding them back from really working for the kingdom or really enjoying the, the joy of the Lord in that moment, and the Lord knew it. We often can read the signs poorly because we don't have the, uh, the right ability. We don't see things as they actually are, and therefore, what's the answer? It's to trust God. There are many examples in, in ancient history of, of people who, uh, who read the signs wrong, who thought that they knew what was up, and therefore they despaired when in fact things were actually going in their favor. One of the most ex uh, famous example is the, uh, in, found in the story of Theseus. Now there's some homeschooled kids here. Who was Theseus? What monster did he kill? Who can tell me? I, okay, Derek, you're kind of an old guy to be answering this question. I was thinking maybe somebody a little younger. Anybody? All right, and then you'll, you'll jump on the answer. Okay, anybody? Any of the uh, younger kids? Who, okay, who did Theseus kill, Derek? Yes, very good. Ding, you got it. Okay. Well, uh, the story of Theseus goes this way, just to briefly review. Theseus, of course, was the son of um, uh, the king of Athens, and his, uh, the king of Crete, King Minos, had sent his son to some games there in Athens, Androgeus, and he had done so well that one of the participants had grown uh, jealous and had actually killed him in the games. King Minos becomes furious. He readies his, flu uh, his fleet. Crete at this point is the superpower in the Mediterranean. They attack Athens. And then after he defeats Athens, he uh, maintains that every seven years, the uh, seven of the most beautiful boys and seven of the most beautiful maidens from Athens would have to be sent as a tribute to Crete, where they would be placed in the labyrinth and the Minotaur would kill them. Yes, believe it or not, Hunger Games and Maze Runner are both completely derivative from ancient stories. Everything that we watch these days is really a reboot of something else, but moving on. So the uh, year, uh, well, every seven years they send their tributes and they're killed by this Minotaur. But then Theseus, the king's son, says, I will go in the place of one of these tributes and I will kill the Minotaur. His father, though, is absolutely afraid that his son will be killed. And so he, he says, no, don't go. He says, don't worry, Dad, I will do it. And I'll tell you what, as I am returning, just to show you that I have succeeded, I will change this sail, the color of the sail on my ship, so you know that it's me coming back, and you'll be able to rejoice. And so with great misgiving, Theseus is sent off, and you know the story, Ariadne gives him the ball of, 
of yarn and he's able to make his way to the center of the, the labyrinth. He's able to kill the minotaur and he's able to escape and then he dumps Ariadne. It's a rather sad story. <laughs> Not a great guy. But anyway, he comes, he's sailing back to Athens. This is the important point. And what does he forget to do? change the sail and so his father sees the wrong color sail and his father despairs my son is dead the uh, the kingdom will be lost with me and so he throws himself off the cliff so at the very moment when the greatest triumph is about to occur he despairs and he gives in that's just a mythological example but here's the thing so many Christians have done essentially the same thing on the very cusp of victory they have despaired If you are in Christ, what can be against you? We look at the world and we see all the darkness. We look at the, I I mean, the news at this point in time, I'm I'm not kidding. I've said this before, but it's true. I, you know, I, I read news. I listen to politicians and I'm like, is this, is this a spoof site? Is this a deep fake? You're, you're attacking crisis pregnancy centers. You're celebrating abortion. Are you insane? Is this, what's going on? This is nuts. So I watch this and I'm like, how can we possibly be delivered? Or we look at at what's going on in our own lives. We see things happening in the lives of our, our spouse, our children, our friends. How can this ever be right? Sometimes we're we are, you know, the like Christian in the castle of giant despair. We contemplate, maybe I should put an end to myself. Make an end of yourselves, giant despair says. That's what the devil's always trying to get us to do. Do yourself in. And that on the very cusp of victory. That's the saddest thing. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 8.28. We talk about that verse, don't we? And how it talks about how all things work for good. But the interesting thing is, Paul doesn't stop writing there, does he? He gives us this peon of triumph that the Christian should celebrate in. But it's interesting, the things that he lists afterwards. I mean, he uses this phrase, we are more than conquerors, but what are the things that he lists after that? So looking at Romans 8, 28, let's, let's read the entire section together. He says there, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. So we read that and we think of good things happening to us. Good things work for my good, right? Well, no, that's not how he goes on. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So one of the things that we need to understand is that the things that are happening in our lives, all those things that he spoke of in Romans 8.28, when were they ordained for us to occur? Before the beginning of time. And they would all work towards what? Bringing us to glory. Well, at the end of time, exactly. They're all meant to work towards our salvation because we're loved by God. And what do those things include? Well, listen to the things. What should we then say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? We all love that, right? That's fine. He who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? You want proof that God loves you? It's in the cross. He gave you his son. He sent him into the world to suffer pain and agony and humiliation and death and to have your sins placed upon his shoulder and then suffer the penalty for them. He did that. How would he let you go if he was willing to do that much for you? Who shall bring, then he goes on, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? 
It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Not only did God send his son into the world to die for your sakes, but then after he had died and risen again, he rises to heaven. What's he doing there? He's not checking social media, although he's aware of everything that happens on social media everywhere constantly, obviously, but he is interceding for you actively at the throne of grace. He makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he says this, shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Yes, we may go through the worst of tribulations. We may even encounter tribulation unto death, but can that separate us from the love of Christ? No, can that disconnect us? Those evil things that men do, can that disconnect us from the good that God intends for us? No, not at all. Yet in all these things, says Paul, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come. This is universals. He's, there's nothing, nothing, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God loves you, if you're his child, if you were elected in eternity past, if you were called in the fullness of time, then everything will work towards your salvation. Everything, everything, everything. The things we enjoy, the things we call good, and the things that we call sad and bad and sometimes even evil providences in our lives. They will work for our good. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Even death, persecution unto death, being burned at the stake, cannot separate you from God. Ultimately, the one who called you to be his own will not just be the author, the beginner of your faith. He'll be the finisher of your faith too and bring you always home. So therefore, for the Christian, and this is vitally important, you never, ever, ever have a right to say all things are against me. For they aren't. All things ultimately work for your good. And brothers and sisters, I tell you the truth, I'm preaching to myself right now. I swear that's the case. Because there are so many times where I sound like Bill Paxton in Aliens. What's well, it? Game over! What are we going to do now? <laughs> Honestly. If I could stand back and, and, you know, what on earth? Where'd your theology go? What happened to you? Where did your, your assurance of the love of God go? Where did your, your belief that he's sovereign over all things, that you've, you've fought with people on the internet for years over this, and now you're acting like it's not true in your own life? What on earth? Brothers and sisters, what do you need to do in those moments when you, you have that Jacob moment, all things are against me? Preach the gospel to yourselves. Preach it. Understand it. Get it in your heart. All things will work for good. And that even in the midst of the worst times of your life, know this, that the love of God is not gone from you. If he loved you once, he will love you forever. And if he loves you, he loved you because he chose you before eternity, before the beginning of time. And he doesn't change. Remember that. We're fickle. Our love may change. 
God's never does. It is always constant. And he knows what's good for us better than we do. We may have to go through the crucible, but the crucible produces the best gold. Refining is not a pleasant experience when we're the ones being refined, but sometimes it is so necessary. It's necessary to fit us for heaven. I haven't enjoyed many of the experiences that I've gone through as a church planter and then as a pastor. Some of them were very, very hard. Hardest times of my entire life were encountered in that. But all of those hard times I know were parts of the refiner's fire. And at the end of time, I've come out better. I can see that. I can say, I now see it had to happen that way. And I'm sure when I get to heaven, I will be able to say, and I'm sure you will be able to say as well, he has done all things well. Let's go before him now. God, our Father, we do thank you, Lord, that you do do all things well and that all things will work for our good. All things are never against your children, for you order them, even the most distressing of things, for their good. Help us in those moments, though, when we are in the castle of giant despair, the evil one is at our elbow, and he is saying, make an end of yourself, or telling us that it's time for a years-long pity party to begin Help us, O Lord, to resist him and to say, no, I serve the one who orders all things for my good and who loves me with an abiding and eternal love, who will never let me go, and who has determined that I will enter into glory. He is the one who has saved me for himself. He called me to be his. He loved me, and therefore, I don't need to fear. I don't need to fear what the world can do, for I know that ultimately... All things will work for my